Welcome to the podcast of Trinity Church London. You're listening to a message given on a Sunday morning. If you'd like to know more about us and the life of the church, please visit trinitychurchlondon.com. I can imagine what it's like if you are in the position of trying to find a new church. I've never personally had to do that. So when I came to faith, I started going to my sister's church, and then I met Daniel, and then because of Daniel, I, I eventually came here. So I've never had to go through that process, but I can imagine and empathise with those who have that you know, finding a new church can be quite challenging, right? And I know I'm, I'm looking at a few faces who are in that process right now. Um, but it's not easy because you've got to find a church that theologically is aligned to you know, what you believe. You've got to find a church, presumably, that is you know, good teaching. Um, you've got to find a church you know, that's got great worship, um, that's perhaps charismatic, which of course is the entire context around this particular passage and what Paul is speaking into. Um, hopefully you'll find a church with a sense of community, somewhere you can muck in and serve, and, and somewhere that really kind of resonates with the foundations of what you believe are important at church. And at the same time, there will be some practical needs, right? It's do they have kids work, you know, for us, you know, is there a crash? Um, is, is it easy to get to? Is it easy to get to midweek meetings, whether it's community group or prayer meetings or whatever it might be? And then you kind of get to this third layer of just preferences, right? Can I turn up in a t-shirt and jeans, right? Or do I have to kind of dress up a bit formally? Um, I don't know, uh, is, it, is it laid back? Is it, is it kind of uh, formal? Is it traditional? Is it contemporary? What's the worship like? Is that contemporary worship or is it like old uh, uh, hymns and things like that? And these things are ultimately preferences, but it's amazing how often preferences can become sticking points. Okay, and we can be like mindful of doing the right thing, but at the same time, these things become quite important. And to some degree, they are important. And I think you know one good example of that would be worship. If you think about contemporary worship, right? There's um, uh, a lot of critics of contemporary worship sort of say, oh, it's it's far too in line with the culture of today. But the irony of that, of course, is that hymns were written in the 16th century in Northern Europe. So really, what we, you know, if we're singing hymns, then they are also influenced by the culture of their time, which was just very different to our context, but it's still not the early church. So it's, it's wrong to kind of place too much weight in one over the other. Now, preferences do become sticking points, but there is one fundamental question that I think Paul alludes to in this passage that matters more than anything else at all. Very simple question. Is God there. Is God really with you? And that is what Paul builds to throughout this passage, all the way through the 25. He's getting to this point where he's saying the secrets of his heart are disclosed, and so falling on his face, he'll worship God and declare that God is really among you. But there's something slightly odd about that, because he's also talking about tongues and prophecy. I'm also told that when two or three gather in his name, you know, that God is there. So, so how can Paul kind of conclude with this very grand statement that someone experiencing church, experiencing fellowship with other Christians can come in, or with, with Christians, I should say, can come and experience something so profound that they recognize God is in the room, God is there, and then they can fall on their face, repent and worship God. Unless Paul is talking about more than just tongues and prophecy. Unless Paul is laying a foundation, a more foundational principle that reflects what we should do when we gather as a church. So what is it about the gathered church? What makes a Sunday so important? Because we all know we are the church today, right? It's not the building anymore, it's not the temple, it's not the tent, it's not the Garden of Eden even. Um, It is us. 
And so what, what is so special about gathering on a Sunday? What makes this so profound? What makes this such a big deal for Paul? And what are the principles that he's trying to lay out? Now, to understand that, I think we need to do what Paul does, which is actually go back to the Old Testament and get a thorough understanding of what the temple really is. And more importantly, what is its role? You know, what makes it unique that when we gather on a Sunday, something special happens? We've heard a lot this morning about you know, God being here. And when you look at the pattern of the Old Testament, when you look at how the temple evolved, it did change quite dramatically over time. I mean, theologians would argue, or at least many would argue, that, that even the Garden of Eden in itself was almost like a prototype temple. Right? The Bible never refers to it in that way, but it was a place where God would walk and talk freely with Adam and Eve. Because there is a, a, a manifest presence of God in the garden. And then, of course, we've got the tabernacle, where um, after the... Uh, uh, the Israelites were set free from, from Egypt. God ordered that the, the tabernacle be built. And this was almost like a, a portable sanctuary where they carried the presence of God with them. And of course, we get to Solomon. And Solomon is, is asked to, to create a temple, this remarkable feat of engineering at the time, and this, this permanent feature. Um, and it actually says in... in um, uh, sorry, I'll come to that in a second. And then it comes to, to Jesus, and then Jesus kind of takes over that role and actually becomes the mediator between God and man. And then... Ultimately, when he dies and ascends and, and the Holy Spirit comes, then we become the living temple. So it's no longer made out of bricks and mortar. It's made out of flesh. It's made out of us. It says in 1 Corinthians 3, Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's Spirit dwells in you? But there are certain characteristics of that temple. Regardless of what state it took, regardless of whether it was flesh, a tent, a, a, a building, a garden, there are characteristics of the temple that remain true. And I want to talk about three. And the first one is very simple. It's a place where God is pleased to dwell. It's a place where God is pleased to dwell. It says in Psalm 132, it says, For the Lord has chosen Zion, that's the, the hill where, uh, in Jerusalem where, the, where, the, where Solomon's temple was built. He has desired it for his dwelling place. This is my resting place. Here I will dwell, for I have desired it. God desires to gather and be with us. When we meet on a Sunday, God is delighted to be with us. And that is the first fundamental characteristic of the temple, that God is pleased to dwell among his people. When we gather, he is here. The second characteristic is that the temple is a place of repentance. It's a place of redemption. It's a place of restoration. You know, when we think about, even back to the, the, um, the, the, the tent, the Holy of Holies, Yom Kippur, which is still a tradition that's followed by the Jews today, it's ten days where they ask for forgiveness and they try and you know, promise to do better the next year. That all started back at, at the same time as the tabernacle, where sacrifices were made and the Israelites would plead to God for forgiveness for the sins they've committed um, throughout the year and then they promised to do better uh, late, uh, in, in the, the year to follow. And of course, as we move through to, to Christ, we get the final sacrifice, the sacrifice that ended all sacrifices, the one where he gave himself, the Lamb of God, to take away the sins of the world. The church is a place of repentance, redemption, and restoration. And the third characteristic of the temple is that it is a place of worship. You know, Zion, the, the hill of Zion, is referenced so often in Scripture. 
And this would have been a place of pilgrimage. People would have flocked there. The Israelites would have gone and worshipped God because they knew the significance of worshipping God together on his holy mountain. It says in Hebrews, when we worship, we come to the heavenly Zion. So even though we no longer go to Jerusalem necessarily to worship, when we worship, we are literally going back to the temple in Zion and we are metaphorically representing that. And we're, we're walking into a spiritual room, we're walking into a spiritual place where we're all glorifying God. But there is something even more amazing that happens when God shows up and we start to worship. And I want to read you two scriptures that reflect that. The first is from Hebrews, it says this, For it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, that is Jesus, in bringing many sons and daughters to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. And what is happening here is we're told here that Jesus, when we gather in worship, Jesus himself stands in the middle of the congregation and he leads us in worship to God. This morning when we were worshipping God, Jesus was amongst us. He was standing in our presence declaring, Lord, you are glorious, you are righteous, all honour and glory and power and majesty to you. Jesus was with us. And then in Zephaniah 3, and Charles read this in the prayer meeting this morning, it's a beautiful passage. It says this, The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exult over you with loud singing. Tim Keller, when he reflects on this, says this, that when we worship, God stands over us and sings back over us in joy. And so you have this beautiful kind of circle going on here, that when we gather on a Sunday to meet together collectively, God's presence is with us in the room. And then because his presence is with us in the room, we can then sing and declare his glory in spirit and in truth. And we'll get to that um, through tongues and prophecy in just a second. We come to the heavenly Zion, the spiritual temple, and then Jesus stands in our midst and he leads us in worship. And as we worship the living God, God then is pleased to dwell amongst us and sings back over us in joy. What a beautiful picture of worship. And that is such a significant uh, key aspect of the temple throughout history. But there's something even more substantial that Paul alludes to here in verse 25. And that is the nature of worship when we gather. It is a place of evangelistic worship. Evangelistic worship. Now, what does that mean? Okay, because we, we know what worship is, right? We were doing it this morning. We were standing here, we were singing songs, we were glorifying our Maker and our, our Saviour. But what does it mean to be evangelistic worship? Well, it's worship that speaks to unbelievers. It is worship that touches the hearts and the minds and the souls of unbelievers. See, in Isaiah 2, it talks about Zion as becoming the centre of, of world-winning worship. The centre of world-winning worship. Now, let's not underestimate what that means. That means that when we gather as a community, when we gather, gather as a body, and when Jesus leads us in worship to the Father, and the Father sings over us, we are actually being evangelistic to those 
around us because they sense something in what we are doing that is so profound, so significant that as Paul says, they fall on their knees, they worship God because God is really in the room. In 1 Peter 2, the same challenge is laid out to the New Testament church. You are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. This is the challenge for evangelistic worship. You see, I think when Paul talks about tongues and prophecy, what he's actually doing is laying a foundation for what should happen when the church gathers. First and foremost, it's up to God. Right? That's why we're here. It's the only reason we can be here. It's because of God. So it's first off, up to God. It's into us. Because God redeems, he restores. He sings joy over us. But significantly, it's also out to others. Up to God, into us, out to others. And if we are to be the centre of world-winning worship, if we as Trinity want to be the centre of, of, of seeing people saved in London, then we need to pay attention to this because Paul is provoking us here. He's saying, there is a certain way that you need to show up. It should change how we see a Sunday service and the significance of a Sunday service. And a Sunday service is very different to a Wednesday prayer meeting. Right? Because we don't expect non-believers to be in the room on a Wednesday prayer meeting, right? Or when we gather in a community group. So how we behave can be very different. But at church, when we gather on a Sunday, there is something profound happening. So when Paul talks about tongues and prophecy, he's actually doing two things. He is teaching on those two gifts because they're important to understand. But he's also laying these foundations, these deeper foundations for a broader context. So what I want to do is I want to quickly walk through 15 points. This is a classic Mr. Cloud. 15 points I'm going to draw very quickly. 15 points. And I'm going to use those three things, up to God, into us, and out to others, to kind of categorise them. There's five in each to keep it really simple. Okay? Number one, when we speak in tongues, we address God. When we speak in tongues, we address God. Now, it doesn't matter whether you speak in tongues or not, right? It's a spiritual gift, and it's one that Paul encourages us to seek after. Why for our own edification? Because it's a glorious thing. We can turn to, to, to God... And in doing so, we can, we can worship him in spiritual language, and it's an incredible thing. But we do address God. And when we think about that, it should impact how we see things like Acts 2 or Acts 10. When we hear about the Holy Spirit coming and uh, disciples speaking in tongues. Because often we can kind of think, oh, they were speaking in tongues, and then you know, there were this, you know, people thought they were drunk. But then they came to know Jesus through that. It's actually, no, that's not, not what happened. It says... Uh, Cretans and, and Arabians, we hear them telling in our tongue the, the mighty works of God. So actually when they're speaking in tongues, they're declaring God's glory. That's what they're doing. And then again in, in Acts 10, they, they heard them speak with tongues and magnify the Lord. God is giving us through tongues a gift, a, a way to magnify him in a way that we could never capture in our native language. We just don't have the ability. He's too glorious. And in verse 15, it talks about two things. And this is my second point, that that tongues is praise and prayer. And it's typically those two things, praise and prayer. And it can be either, but it's, again, it's still directed to God. Number three, it means that when we interpret, which Paul encourages again, even that should be addressed to God. Okay, the interpretation of something addressed to God is still going to be addressed 
to God. So that's not to say that, you know, I'm, I'm, there are I've heard times in the past where, not here, uh, where someone has kind of interpreted the tongue and said, you know, I am your God and I'm speaking to you. And it's actually, well, that, that's not, we're told here, that's not how tongues works. Tongues is to God, prophecy is to man. That doesn't mean that that was done in, with any malice intent either. I, you know, I think it's easy to get confused when you, when you feel God's spirit uh, prompting you with a prophecy and you can come within what you think is an interpretation. It's not, but it's, it's just a different thing. Number four, because it's up to God, we should seek to do it in a way that doesn't distract others. Right? We should seek to do it in a way that isn't trying to get attention. Because actually it's not about encouraging those around us. It's not about lifting each other up. It's about declaring God's glory. It's about praying to him. But I also want to end on this fifth point for tongues, which is it's not a bad thing. Right? There's a sense of kind of caution with it, but at the same time it's no. This is for our edification. This is a glorious thing. We should pursue it. It is a good thing. I thank God that I speak in tongues more than all of you. I don't think Paul is boasting. Sounds like it, but he's not. He said, I, I'm just so grateful. I get to, to speak in tongues and declare the glory of God like, all the time. It's amazing. That's not a boast in himself. That's a boast in God. Number six, turning to prophecy. So this concept of coming into us. Prophecy is directed to each other. Verse three says, this, the one who prophesies speaks to people for their upbuilding and encouragement and consolation. The case of prophecy, very simple point, is directed to each other. Number seven, it is largely positive. Okay, prophecy is largely positive. There's three things going on here, right? Building up, so upbuilding, encouragement, and consolation. So a way, way of saying that is edification. And edification is a construction word. It literally means to build up, to build someone up. It's not like crushing someone right, under the weight of guilt or anything like that. It's lifting them up. The second one, exhortation, is encouragement. Now, it's, it's not about discouraging one another, but encouraging one another. And the third one, comfort, um, which can sound like consoling, but actually it's, it's more than that, because it's also strengthening. You know, when someone's going through a tough time, it's easy enough to put an arm around them. But actually, what this word kind of means is it's, it's more than that. It's putting an arm around them and, and telling them something that will give them the strength to carry on. Or give them a Bible verse or a word of encouragement, something that can really strengthen them for the time and the season that they're going through. Test number seven, it's largely positive in nature. Number eight, it's not just prophecy. Okay, Paul does tend to focus the majority of this passage on tongues and prophecy, but in, in verse six, it says, now brothers, if I came to you speaking in tongues, how would I benefit you unless I bring you some revelation or knowledge or prophecy or teaching? The spiritual gifts, and we've heard a lot about this over the last few months, the spiritual gifts are there for each other, right? They're not necessarily for us. You know, the gift of tongues is it's, it's for our edification, it's to glorify God. But so many of the spiritual gifts are there for building and encouraging one another. So when Paul's talking about um, about Edification, exhortation, and comfort it is not just about prophecy. Number nine, when we gather and we worship, we worship together. Okay, we are set in a Western context, right? And I mean, you hear it in a lot of contemporary music, actually, that we can become very I. So when we hear into us, we can almost go, oh, into me. 
But that's not the point. There is, again, there is a reason we gather together collectively as a body. This is not about the individual. This is not about a devotional in the week which you might do on your own. This is about us together collectively. Otherwise, if you give thanks with your spirit, how can anyone in the position of an outsider say amen? There is something delightful about hearing someone praying out in a service and being able to stand with them and say, Amen. There is something incredible about that. You don't get to experience that unless you gather together as the body. Number 10. All of this can make it sound like there is a word of caution around using spiritual gifts. That is completely false. What it's actually saying is don't approach them with caution, just use them well. Okay, verse 12. So with yourself, since you are eager for manifestations of the Spirit, strive to excel in building up the church. Okay, we can't approach spiritual gifts with caution. We can't approach worship with caution. We need to just do them well. And that means we simply need to understand their purpose and what they're for. Into us. And we move into this idea of being outfathers. How the church is the center of world-winning worship. So number 11, we need to expect unbelievers to be in the room. We need to expect unbelievers to be in the room. Now if you are an unbeliever in the room, can I just say thank you for hearing this rather obscure preach, which is talking about you a lot. Um, But for those of you who are Christians, that should shape our posture. You know, because we're not coming to another prayer meeting. We're not coming to another community group. We are coming for fellowship. We're coming for meals together. We're coming for some amazing things. But we're, we are the center of world-winning worship, evangelistic worship, which means our heads are up. We're looking out. We're seeing who we don't know. Have they been here before? Are they a Christian? Do they have the pleasure of knowing Jesus? Because if they don't, we need to speak to them. We need to encourage them in. Number 12, and there is a big theme of this happening throughout this passage. We are called to orderly worship. Which kind of sounds like a bizarre thing, because in one sense we're, we're called to you know, rejoice and sing in the spirit. You know, it, it says, uh, I can't remember which verse, I sing with my spirit, I sing with, with, with um, my, my tongue, with my mind. Um, but actually, it's about orderly worship. It's about thinking about the individuals who might be experiencing this kind of crazy world for the first time. It's about recognising that there are unbelievers in the room who might be experiencing that. And in turn, number 13, that means we need to pastor people in the room. It's not just up to pastors to pastor. It's up to the church to pastor. Because actually what we're doing is we're looking out to those who might look a little bit lost. You know, it's like um, you probably have noticed when uh, a tongue is brought um, in a service. And of course we should... Try to wait for interpretation for that. Daniel will often, or someone will often stand up and say, what we've just heard is a tongue. And what we're going to now do is just give it a few minutes, we're going to wait for interpretation. He's pastoring people through something that might feel a bit bizarre to them. Right? In, the, in Act 2, the people thought that Peter and the other disciples were drunk because they were speaking in tongues. And we need to be mindful of that when there are unbelievers in the room. So we need, to be, we need to be aware and we need to pass the people. Number 14, if you're not sure, ask. 
Okay, often you'll see people come up to, to one of the leaders, one of the, the ownership team, and kind of like just sense check something. Now, it's not actually a sense check in the way of, oh, is this approved to be said? It's just sensing what God is doing. It's, it's trying to sense, is this an encouragement for you, personally? Or is this an encouragement that we can all enjoy? You know, it's just understanding what God is doing in that moment. It's not like a sense check. It's not an okaying thing. Okay? It's just seeing what God is doing and responding to it. And number 15... I'm doing quite well. I can slow down. Number 15, lastly, but certainly not least, we need to come expectantly. Because when it talks in the Old Testament about Zion being the centre of world-winning worship, that means we should expect that on a regular basis people will come and join us, unbelievers will come and join us and meet with God. Right? This is not a passive thing. This is not us sitting back and going, well, hopefully something will happen. No. Expect it. The church, the modern church, the, 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 the people that gather here today is now the centre of world-winning worship. So when we worship, we should expect something to happen. We should expect Jesus to show up and to lead us in worship. We should expect God the Father to sing over us with joy. And we should expect people to come to know Jesus. We should come expectant. Now, practically for us, this means a few things. So I've got another 23 for that. Got another couple of things. Firstly, when we think about church, what it's for, and actually today is a wonderful example of this because we're having lunch together afterwards. It is about fellowship, it is about community, it is about discipleship, it is about growth. It is about service, it is about ministry, and all of these things are yes and amen. These are wonderful, wonderful things. But let me tell you a quick story. And I've actually used this story before, so if it's the second time you've heard it, I'm sorry. Claire and I were talking to uh, some parents in our NCT group, which is a, if you don't know, kids, it's for new parents to meet other parents. And um, we were talking about the fact we go to church, and someone there said, oh, you go for fellowship, right? You go for community. I'm like, no. Not because I don't, because that's important. I go to church because Jesus saved me. I go to church because he is worthy of my praise. I go to church because when we gather together, something special happens. That's why I come to church. And so we need to be super mindful that while these things are true and good and we should not underestimate them, there's a good reason we're doing much today together. We believe in fellowship. We also need to recognise the fact that fellowship or friendship meets a relational need that you could get elsewhere. An intellectual preach or um, discipleship, right? That can give you a sense of, you know, kind of improvement, growth, um, mental stimulation, it can, it can satisfy needs, but spiritual needs can only ever be met through God. That's it. There is no other way. And that is incredibly unique to a church context over a book club or a rowing club or whatever your thing is. <laughs> I've never read it in my life, I don't know why I use that example. <laughs> I was say, I've never read it, but I have. I've read it. <laughs> we as a church, we need to be careful that we don't turn inwards alone. Because as we have been leaning more and more into spiritual gifts, which is an incredibly good thing to lean into, there is a danger that we go up to God 
into ourselves, but we forget to go out to others. Okay, and part of the richness of gifts is they're, they're there to lead us out, actually. They're there to give us the strength, the words, the encouragement in ourselves to then pass that on to others. Convicted by all, he is called to account by all. The secrets of his heart are disclosed, and so, falling on his face, he will worship God and declare that God is really among you. One of the things I love about this passage is where Paul anchors it. First two words, pursue love. If we turn up on a Sunday expectant, expectant to be the centre of world-winning worship, and we come with that expectation, and at the same time we pursue love, then this stuff will just happen. Why? Because it's nothing to do with us, really. Jesus is in the centre amongst the, the congregation, leading us in worship, and God is singing over us. Up to God, into us, out to others. <laughs>